Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone phone. And as a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Senior Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Christian. and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Connect Education Workshop, Updates in the Treatment of Estrogen Receptor or ER Positive, Progesterone Receptor, PR Positive, and HER2 Positive Breast Cancer from the 46th Annual San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium, SABCS. And I have to say that today's program um, is uh, supported by Bristol-Myers Squibb, Novartis Oncology, a grant from Genentech, and Lynn and Frank Flanagan. I really want to thank all of them for their support of this program today. Now, um, before I proceed with the call, I just wanted to let you all know that there's over 450 participants on the call today. You come from all over the United States, from both urban, rural, suburban, and frontier communities. And we also have international participants from Algeria, Bahrain, Canada, Germany, Ghana, India, Laos, Sweden, Thailand, and the United Kingdom. So this is a global call. And uh, we're delighted to have all of you on this program today. And now it is my great pleasure to introduce our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Kate Lathrop, and Dr. Lathrop is Associate Professor, Division of Hematology and Oncology, UT Health San Antonio Breast Medical Oncology, Mays Cancer Center at UT Health San Antonio, Assistant Dean of Undergraduate Research, Long School of Medicine, UT Health San Antonio, Program Director, Medical Oncology and Hematology Fellowship Program, UT Health San Antonio, Program Director, San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium. And Dr. Lathrop will be addressing updates from the 46th Annual San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium on Diagnostic Testing, Biomarkers, Precision Medicine, Graded Hormone Receptors, What's New in the Treatment of ERPR and HER2 Positive Breast Cancer, and updates from SABCS on Hormone and Targeted Therapy. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Lathrop. Well, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here and speaking with all of you about some of the um, work that was presented at the San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium in December. We had a great conference. I have about 10 minutes, so I really want to try to focus my, my 10 minutes with you guys on um, a, new, a new therapeutic window that we're looking at in patients with metastatic estrogen receptor, hormone receptor positive breast cancer. And I want to talk about two new medicines that um, one is already approved and the other one will hopefully be approved in the near future. Uh, really looking at how we can target a protein which has a very long strange name, but it's called PI3 kinase. And the first drug I want to talk about 
was presented at SABCS this year in the terms of how we develop new medications, new drugs for our patients with breast cancer, and specifically how some of the agencies like the FDA or the European uh, drug approval agencies really look at medicines and determine you know, who, who benefits from these medicines and who doesn't. Because the real question is, we want to make sure we're giving these new drugs to patients who are going to benefit from them. And the more selective our medicines are, the more targeted they are to certain parts of the cancer cell that are um, mutated or not functioning correctly, then, you know, we also have a, uh, we take the whole group of patients and we start selecting the ones that will benefit the most and then also not giving drugs to patients that we don't think will work and potentially just cause increased toxicities. So in that context, I want to just review a, a new medication, which is called capacertib. And this is an oral medicine that's FDA approved. It's a 400 milligram oral dose that's given twice daily for four days in a row, and then we give patients a three-day break. And that's approved in the United States to be given in combination with a drug called fulvestrant, which is an intermuscular injection that we give once a month. And the study that this is based off of is called the Capitello 291 study. And it enrolled patients that had hormone receptor positive HER2 negative metastatic breast cancer. Uh, so these patients had a recurrence of their breast cancer or progression while on um, therapies like aromatase inhibitors in the advanced setting. They could only have had two prior lines of endocrine therapy and could have only had, had one prior line of chemotherapy to be eligible for the study. And about half the patients had already received a group of medicines that um, are pretty standard to be given first line in the metastatic setting, and those are called CDK4-6 inhibitors. And so patients who enrolled on this study, half of them were treated with fulvestrant um, and a placebo, and the other half were treated with fulvestrant and CAPI. And the, what's interesting about this is how this drug works. So again, PI3 kinase gene is a commonly mutated gene in patients with estrogen receptor positive breast cancer. And it's a key signaling part of the cancer cell that leads to the cancer cell being able to survive even in an environment where other cells uh, might not survive. And so what was presented at SABCS is really looking at the biomarkers, which is something I was asked to talk about. So about 44% of the patients on this study had a mutation in either the PI3 kinase or some of the associated genes. Um, some of those genes were called P10, AKT1, um, and about 40% of the patients were not mutated. 16% of the patients, unfortunately, we did not have data on in this, in this trial. And so what the data showed was really overall patients responded to this. So patients who were getting CAPI responded for an average of 7.2 months versus 6, I'm sorry, 3.6 if you were only getting the fulvestrant in the um, placebo. But once you break out into the patients that were biomarker positive, that's where you saw almost all of the benefit. So patients who had those mutations, they responded to this drug for about seven months. 
versus patients who did not have the mutation only responded for five. And so based on that, the FDA actually approved this drug just in the setting of patients who have a PI3 kinase or a PI3 kinase-associated mutation. And I think this is important. Uh, you know, our advocates brought up, you know, trying to make sure that we're selecting patients who really are going to benefit the most from, from therapies and not treating patients who we don't think are going to have a significant benefit, but then would also have potential toxicities. Because whenever we add two drugs instead of one, we're we're adding toxicity, and we want to make sure that that benefit is, um, you know, at least equal, if not greater, to the toxicity. So I want to switch over to another PI3 kinase inhibitor that was presented at SABCS. And this abstract or this research project was added um, actually during the symposium because the data became available. And this drug is called inazolfenib, and it uh, was given versus a placebo in kind of the same patient population. So it was in patients who were receiving a medicine called palbociplib, which is a CDK4-6 inhibitor with fulvestrant, again, the same medicine that was in the CAPI trial. And this is in patients who also have the PI3 kinase mutation that were hormone receptor positive. And uh, so what they found in this study, they enrolled patients who were PI3 kinase mutated that were HER2 positive, and they also were testing uh, circulating tumor cell DNA, which was not presented at this conference but will be presented in the future. And the difference between this drug and the CAPI drug is that it's a little bit different in how it interacts with the receptor, which is the PI3 kinase receptor. And so the investigators are hopeful that this drug will have a little bit less toxicity, but will still have a sufficient benefit. Uh, and so what they found, the patients in the, in the treatment arm stayed on treatment for an average of 15.0 months versus 7.3 months in patients who were on the placebo arm of the trial. So there was a significant what's called progression-free survival, which was the main endpoint. And this is after a follow-up of only about 21 months. So this data is still being uh, followed. These patients are still being followed on the study, and we anticipate having updated data at future conferences. So then the other thing the investigators presented was patients who were receiving the investigational drug, which was Inovo plus, plus, plus um, palbociplib and fulvestrant. They looked at all these different groups to see who uh, maybe responded to that medicine versus who did not. And all of their pre-specified or pre-arranged groups of patients based on age or region that the study was, it was a global study, their performance status, so how, how fit they were, and importantly, whether they were pre- or post-menopausal, um, all of those favored the investigational drug, this new drug, over the placebo. So I think one thing that's always important when we, when we talk about new, new drugs are toxicities. So this group of, of medicines tends to have similar toxicities. 
So patients who were in the investigational arm did have more toxicities than those receiving the placebo. And the most common toxicities for this medication were neutropenia, which is lowering of the white blood cell count, thrombocytopenia, which was a decrease in platelets, and then inflammation in the mouth, so stomatitis and mucosal inflammation. Those were the most common. And then an important side effect of this whole class of medicines, which are the PI3 kinase inhibitors, um, is hyperglycemia, which is rising of the blood glucose level. So these drugs can actually induce um, a diabetes-like physiology in our patients. This has to be followed very closely. Um, and it also has some increased GI toxicities, such as diarrhea, nausea, and rash. So again, when we're adding uh, multiple medications, we need to balance that out with the, with the side effects. So the conclusion of this study was that the Innovo was um, additive as far as how long women were able to stay on treatment without their cancer growing when it was given in combination with palbociplib, which is a PI3, I mean, which is a CDK4-6 inhibitor in full vestrant, and that this was a statistically significant, meaningful, meaningful progression-free survival. And again, this was just in patients who had PI3 kinase mutations, as opposed to the CAPI study, which had patients that um, some were not PI3 kinase mutated. So... Um, an exciting new uh, branch of medicines that we're using in our hormone receptor positive patients with metastatic disease and very biomarker driven. Thank you so much, Dr. Lathrop. That was just a wonderful sure. presentation. You really set the stage for the program today, um, presenting some really um, well innovative treatments that were not available before. So um, I'm sure there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well. So stellar presentation. Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, and um, our next presenter is Dr. Jennifer Metro. And Dr. Metro is Associate Professor of Medicine, co-leader, breast disease team, Division of Hematology Oncology, UC San Diego Comprehensive Breast Health Team. And Dr. Maitre will be addressing chemotherapy updates from San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium, investigational new drugs and clinical trials, and how research contributes to treatment options. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Maitre. Thank you, Dr. Messner. And it's a real pleasure to be here uh, speaking to everyone around the globe today. Um, as Dr. Messner mentioned, I'm going to be talking about uh, chemotherapy updates from the San Antonio Breast Cancer Conference last month. Um, and I'm supposed to finish off by talking about how research contributes to treatment options, but basically what, what Dr. Lathrop talked about and what I'm going to talk about and um, Dr. Canola today are all results from clinical trials that are leading to new treatment options. And so research uh, contributes to treatment options by evaluating new novel therapies, um, figuring out what they're best paired with, figuring out which patients are going to respond best so that we can, can tailor therapy to those who are going to benefit the most and justify some of the side effects. And every new medication that is approved for not just breast cancer but all cancer um, is there because patients, individual patients, volunteered for clinical trials and volunteered to participate in the research. So, uh, that's really how research contributes to new treatment options, and 
for all patients out there who are able to, participating in clinical trials uh, is a great option. Um, it's a great opportunity to access new medicines um, before they're available to the general public, uh, and it also contributes to, to advancing our knowledge about therapies. Um, so with that caveat, I'll talk about uh, first chemotherapy updates. Um, and essentially chemotherapy, uh, you know, we haven't had a new pure chemotherapy medicine approved in breast cancer in a number of years, and that's because um, we're, we're basically de developing new medicines that are smarter ways to deliver chemotherapy. Uh, so figuring out how we can develop chemotherapy in a way that's going to target the cells that we want to target, minimize the side effects, and how can we enhance the benefits of the medicines that we already have access to. Uh, so there are two themes that I'm going to talk about. Uh, the first is adding immunotherapy to chemotherapy medicines, and then a, a, a class of drugs that have really exploded over the last decade, which are antibody drug conjugates. Uh, so immunotherapy are medicines that are approved in a number of different types of cancers now, and essentially what they do is they, they take the brakes off the immune system. So cancer cells are far into the body, um, but, in, but for, for most patients, the, their immune system doesn't recognize those cancer cells as foreign, and so the cancer cells are, large, are allowed to grow. And what immunotherapy does is kind of takes the brakes off of the, the patient's immune system, and the immune system then attacks the cancer. Um, we have immunotherapy, a medication called pembrolizumab, which is already approved uh, in two settings. The first is with triple negative breast cancer, when it's incorporated with standard chemotherapy in the preoperative setting, and then continued after surgery. Um, and that's approved because it, ha it has shown that um, the pathologic complete response, which is uh, when you get chemotherapy before surgery and at the time of surgery the cancer is completely killed, um, that adding the, the pembrolizumab to standard chemotherapy improves the likelihood of getting a complete response, and that has translated into fewer patients developing recurrences uh, after surgery and after completing their, their treatments. And then it's also approved in metastatic triple negative breast cancer that expresses a particular biomarker, which is a PDL1 protein. Uh, and so patients who have triple negative breast cancer that is metastatic that expresses that PDL1 protein, they are eligible to have the pembrolizumab added to a, a selection of different chemotherapy options that um, really just depends on. When your recent treatment, when your most recent treatment was, or when, um, and and side effect profiles. Thus far, we haven't, uh, we don't have approval for any immunotherapies in hormone positive or HER2 positive breast cancer. The data just hasn't been as conclusive. Um, and in San Antonio this year, or last year, last month, um, we saw results from a, an updated trial called the Keynote 756, which was looking at adding pembrolizumab to standard chemotherapy in women with high-risk hormone-positive HER2-negative early breast cancer. And what they found was that adding the pembrolizumab uh, to standard chemotherapy in these hormone-positive breast cancers, that the rate of a complete response was significantly higher. Um, 
the, the actual, the absolute rates were lower than what we see in triple negative breast cancer, which is something that's expected. Uh, hormone positive breast cancer, not quite as chemotherapy sensitive in general. Um, and that's usually not as big a problem because we have the hormone medications, the hormone pills that patients get for five to 10 years after chemotherapy. Um, but this was uh, a study that showed that there were higher rates of complete responses when you added the pembrolizumab to chemotherapy. There were no new safety signals, so all the side effects were essentially what we would expect. Um, it's a little bit early uh, to know if this is going to be routinely incorporated into hormone-positive early breast cancer because we don't yet know if the improvement in the complete response rate is going to translate into a reduction in the risk of the cancer returning in the future. So we do have to wait and see if, that's, um, if that is demonstrated, but that was, uh, this was one of uh, the positive results uh, and a, showing an improvement in, in complete response rates with the pembrolizumab. There is another immunotherapy medication called atezolizumab. Um, some patients in the US and uh, Europe will recognize this medicine. It was briefly approved in triple negative breast cancer in the metastatic setting, um, but with longer follow-up, the, the benefits uh, really didn't outweigh the risks, and so that approval was um, withdrawn by the FDA. So we don't have an approval for tezolizumab in the U.S. anymore. Uh, and we saw results from a, a trial called the Alexandra or Impassion 130 trial, uh, which was looking at early stage triple negative breast cancer patients who had had surgery first. And adding a tezolizumab to chemotherapy, unfortunately, was not beneficial. There was not a difference in recurrence or survival. Um, so what this shows really is that, that um, incorporating the immunotherapy medicines that we have before surgery is really the place that they should be used. Um, and we, we're not, we don't quite know, but there may be differences in atezolizumab versus pembrolizumab, and atezolizumab may just not be as active a medication. So currently, atezolizumab is not being used in breast cancer. Um, and then back to pembrolizumab. Um, we saw a very interesting study called the KeyLink 009 trial, which looked at patients with metastatic triple negative breast cancer who, had, who were untreated in that setting. And uh, they were, received uh, four to six cycles of carboplatin and gemcitabine, which are standard chemotherapy medicines. And these were um, when, uh, and, then, and that was combined with pembrolizumab as sort of an induction. And then after the four to six cycles of chemotherapy, uh, patients were randomized to continue the chemotherapy or to stop the IV chemotherapy and switch to an oral a uh, medication called Olaparib, which is a PARP inhibitor um, that targets a uh, way that cancers uh, take advantage of our DNA repair uh, and is approved right now in patients who have BRCA1 and 2 mutations. And so we were, what this trial was looking for was to see if patients had um, improved or similar outcomes by getting a chance to kind of take an IV chemotherapy holiday um, and switching to a pill. And what they saw was there was no difference in the, in, um, the, in the progression uh, or survival with the Olaparib. It wasn't better than chemotherapy, but it also didn't appear to be worse. Uh, and the side effects were much more manageable with Olaparib. So um, this is not quite um, yet ready, ready and approved for, um, 
for uh, sort of incorporation into routine clinical practice, but it does um, introduce the concept of a potential IV chemotherapy holiday by incorporating an oral pill that may, ha may have um, less side effects and continuing the immunotherapy as kind of a maintenance approach. So um, more to come on that. And then finally, I'll finish up by talking about antibody drug conjugates. So antibody drug conjugates are uh, really smart delivery systems of chemotherapy. They incorporate um, a chemotherapy payload to an antibody. And the antibody hones in on a protein or um, marker that is expressed on the cancer cells, um, is, incorporated, is internalized into the cancer cell, and then releases the chemotherapy payload into the, chemother into the cancer cell. So uh, it's almost like a missile strike, so targeting that cancer cell as opposed to carpet bombing, which is what just chemotherapy in general does, where it, it kills even healthy cells. Um, so there is the first antibody drug conjugate that was approved in breast cancer is a medicine called Kebsila or atotrastuzumab pantene, and that is approved in metastatic HER2-positive breast cancer and in early-stage HER2-positive breast cancer in women who don't have a complete response to preoperative therapy. And in San Antonio, we, we learned the, the final uh, data from the Catherine trial, which was looking at um, this medicine compared to trastuzumab. If you do have residual disease after chemotherapy, and there were significant uh, persistent improvements in the risk of recurrence and in uh, survival in patients who got that Ketsilo or TDM1 compared to patients who got trastuzumab alone. So that reinforces current practice that we continue to use today. Uh, the second antibody drug conjugate that was approved in, uh, in uh, breast cancer was trastuzumab Durexican. Uh, and that is currently approved in the second-line setting for HER2-positive metastatic breast cancer um, and is also uh, approved in uh, patients with HER2-low metastatic breast cancer after they've progressed on one or two lines of chemotherapy. Um, and uh, we didn't get any updated data in, in that setting, but there, uh, a third antibody drug conjugate, which looks like it's uh, the closest to approval, and that is datopotamab durexican, um, which is similar to um, trastuzumab durexican. So they have a very similar payload or, or chemotherapy, but a different antibody target. Uh, and we saw uh, additional data, uh, data from the um, Tropion Bresto 1 study. And this is looking in, in patients um, with hormone positive HER2 negative breast cancer who have progressed on one to two lines of chemotherapy, and it was found to be, DATO-DXC was found to be superior to just standard chemotherapy in these patients. Um, so this was seen regardless of the number of prior chemotherapy, prior use of endocrine therapy, and whether patients had brain metastases or not. And there were also fewer than half the number of serious side effects in patients with chemotherapy. So um, we're really moving more towards these smart delivery systems of antibody drug conjugates. There's several others that are in the pipeline. Um, and then we also have uh, other investigational new drugs that are in clinical trials that are targeting some of these biomarkers that Dr. Lathrop mentioned um, that are targeting cancers that have mutations in certain pathways that we know are, um, are integral in how, how cancers uh, learn to grow around some of the medicines that are currently approved. Um, so with that, I will um, pause, and um, I'm happy to take questions uh, towards the end of the program. 
Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Maitre. That was a wonderful presentation, uh, quite outstanding and stellar, and um, covering a lot of important areas. And I know there will be questions for you during um, the Q&A session. So thank you so much. Thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Marcella Canola. And Dr. Canola is Assistant Professor of Medicine, Division of Hematology Oncology, Breast Medical Oncology, UT Health San Antonio Mays Cancer Center. And Dr. Mesa will be addressing what's new in the prevention and management of treatment side effects, discomfort, neuropathy, and pain, got questions to ask your healthcare team, guidelines to prepare for telehealth telemedicine appointments, including prepared list of questions, quality of life concerns, and discussion of open notes. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Canola. Uh, thank you, Dr. Mesner, for that introduction, and I'm, I'm happy to be uh, with all of you today. So um, I will start actually with the last part, you know, kind of making a comment in as far as telehealth appointments. And I think the pandemic is, is something that opened all of us to the use of these resources as a way to access care when we don't have opportunity to access care. For example, if we have issues with transportation or patients that are infected with flu and they don't want to infect others, telehealth has become a way to access the care when our patients need it. And I will tell all of you what I tell my patients when we uh, schedule a telehealth appointment. It's important uh, to make a list to set up the goals of what you want to discuss uh, with your physician on that telehealth appointment. And also it's important to remember that if you feel like a concern or a problem warrants a physical exam, it's important to, of course, communicate with your provider to make sure that you have instead of an in-visit appointment. Um, so I'm going to then switch gears and talk a little bit about prevention. So San Antonio Breast did something very special this year in the sense that they really highlighted the role of prevention. Uh, every year, San Antonio presents uh, something that is called the McGuire Award. This award uh, highlights the research work of somebody that has dedicated their life uh, to something when it comes to uh, the treatment of breast cancer or research related to breast cancer. So this year, the awardee was Dr. Cusick, which has been one of the pioneers uh, in uh, the science of breast cancer prevention because obviously we want to prevent these diseases as much as possible. Although it's very exciting to find new therapies, we don't want our patients to follow these diseases. So I will highlight uh, three uh, big trials that he mentioned. Uh, the first one is the IVIS trial. This is a trial that started a long time ago, and this basically looked at patients that had increased risk of breast cancer. They were randomized to take tamoxifen at standard doses versus placebo, which means not taking anything. And uh, although we had some initial data looking at 10-year outcomes after these patients were exposed to five years of tamoxifen. Dr. Cusick gave us the uh, follow-up uh, numbers for 20 years of follow-up. So his conclusion was that after tw 20 years of follow-up of patients being exposed to tamoxifen for five years, there was a 30% risk reduction on breast cancer for these patients, which was quite remarkable. He then followed to mention a very important clinical trial in breast cancer called the APAT trial. So this trial basically looked at patients with history of hormone receptor positive breast cancer and randomized them to take either tamoxifen or an aromatase inhibitor. As a reminder, the aromatase inhibitor that we have available 
um, to us here in the U.S. in the states and in most countries are anastrozole, letrozole, and eczemastine. In this particular case, they use uh, anastrozole compared with tamoxifen. And on this trial, we learned that the use of anastrozole decreased the rate of recurrence of breast cancer in the contralateral breast even for patients with history of breast cancer, resulting in a 50% risk reduction of recurrence, which was quite impressive. So then, uh, basically, uh, Dr. Cusick and colleagues uh, used these same agents, uh, the aromatase inhibitors, and used them as a way to prevent cancer in patients that were uh, considered to be high risk. Uh, basically, we were able to see the data after uh, 20 years of follow-up. And again, these uh, patients, when they took five years of aromatase inhibitor, they had a pretty remarkable risk reduction on the risk of uh, breast cancer, which is 60% risk reduction, which was quite impressive. Then speaking of other strategies uh, for prevention, we had some information given to us as far as prevention in a very special population, and those are the patients with history of germline mutation BRCA1 and BRCA2. So as a reminder, when patients are carriers of this mutation, they have an increased lifetime risk of breast cancer and other cancers. And it has been a struggle to find out what's the best strategy to protect this patient population. So we had the results of a small trial that was done using tamoxifen as a way to prevent breast cancer in this particular high-risk population. And it was actually quite a challenge because although they were able to see a discrete risk reduction, the trial was very small. It was probably not powerful enough to see a significant difference. So the investigators were not able to basically tell us that uh, this strategy will result in a meaningful reduction of uh, breast cancer risk. So this highlights what uh, Dr. Mato uh, said in her presentation. Clinical trial enrollment is significantly important for us to move the needle and protect patients. But um, I will highlight that you know it's um, a clinical trial that help us to maybe open some provocative questions to see if this is the best strategy for this particular patient population. At the same time, they mentioned some uh, other medications that are available to us, and I will refer to a medication called Denosumab. This medication is currently used in the treatment of osteoporosis, and is also used in patients that have metastatic uh, breast cancer spread in the bones. And it seems that uh, some initial clinical trials may show that this agent could be particularly effective in preventing breast cancer in patients that had a BRCA1 or BRCA2 mutation. So there's more provocative data uh, hopefully coming our way to help this patient population. Uh, as far as symptom management, so our patients, uh, when they are diagnosed with uh, breast cancer, they really struggle with the management of vasomotor symptoms. But vasomotor, I, I refer to the flushing, the flashes, uh, the sweating that they can suffer when they are taking medications that suppress their estrogen. Same thing is true for patients that just go through natural menopause. And we know that in some instances, uh, the use of certain hormones are, you know, it's, it's, it's utilized to decrease this very annoying symptoms that our patients go through. 
So we had a very nice update from Dr. Fabian that looked at these strategies that we use to deal with these vasomotor symptoms um, in patients. So basically, we have some strategies uh, that are available to us through medications such as uh, gabapentin. It's a medication that is used uh, frequently. We also use medications such as uh, uh, SSRIs, which is selective serotonin uh, receptor inhibitor, uh, medications such as um, duloxetine, sertraline that you might have heard of. There's other medications called oxybutynin. That's a medication that is used uh, for um, bladder control in patients with incontinence. And although these strategies are available to us, they're effective in about just half of the patients. So we're really looking for our strategies to improve the symptoms. So this leads me to uh, an interesting trial uh, which used an agent called vasodoxyphene. This agent is a selective estrogen receptor modulator, or SERM, and in this case was given to patients with no history of breast cancer. These were patients that were just dealing with vasomotor symptoms. This medication was given in combination with conjugated oral estradiol, meaning hormones in a pill form. In this trial, they included patients, as I said, that had no history of breast cancer, patients that were suffering with vasomotor symptoms, and patients that did not have obesity. And they treated these patients with this combination of six months and assessed the change in the breast tissue and change in other uh, areas of the body or even the body composition. So we learned that, that the use of this agent really decreased uh, the amount of fat that patients had in the breast. It changed their body composition and perhaps improved insulin resistance as they measure insulin levels in these patients before and after. So this agent is really paving the way for some hopefully options for our patients down the road as it seems to be an agent that is effective controlling the vasomotor symptoms and decreasing that influx from estrogen in our patients. I will conclude by also mentioning uh, the EXACT trial. So this is very important because it uh, looked into the use of exercise as a tool to treat breast cancer. So in these patients, they had uh, different populations. They had patients that had surgery and were uh, ready to start an adjuvant therapy, meaning therapies that you do after surgery to prevent cancer from coming back. And they also look into patients that were having chemotherapy before surgery. And it looked at a dedicated exercise program as a way to treat them. And it was very exciting to see that exercise might slow down the tumor growth in their clinical trial. However, they were very clear that exercise won't reverse or will make the tumor disappear. But definitely there is a hint that it might help just to slow down how quickly these tumors are growing. Uh, they also were able to conclude that when patients exercise during treatment and after treatment, they seem to have a lower mortality uh, from breast cancer. Uh, same was positive for patients that had a history of what we call metastatic disease, meaning advanced cancer. It seems that patients with, uh, with metastatic disease that exercise during the treatment course did better and perhaps they may have lower mortality too. So very exciting data coming from San Antonio and um, hopefully uh, some things that we're looking forward to implement uh, in the near future. Happy to take any questions. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Mazzola. That was really, Dr. Canella, that was really excellent and really just a superb presentation.
stellar and really um, addressing a lot of issues. I think um, the concluding comments about exercise is certainly important um, to follow. Um, that's really um, something that we hear more and more about in the literature. So thank you so much. And I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A. And our next speaker is um, uh, Ms. Cassie Spector. And Ms. Spector is an oncology social worker. And she is our breast and gynecological cancer program coordinator to cancer care. And she'll be addressing cancer care's free programs and services and be giving information about our helpline and our website. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Spector. Thank you, Dr. Mesner. As mentioned, my name is Cassie Spector, and I'm the Breast and Gynecological Cancers Program Coordinator and an Oncology Social Worker at Cancer Care. My role includes working with individuals diagnosed with breast and gynecological cancers and their families, as well as developing programs and initiatives for Cancer Care's Breast and Gynecological Cancers Program. I'll be speaking about Cancer Care's programs and services. Cancer Care is a national nonprofit organization providing free professional support services and information to help people manage the emotional, practical, and financial challenges of cancer. Our comprehensive services include resource navigation, counseling and support groups, educational workshops, publications, and possible limited financial assistance. There are many aspects of a breast cancer diagnosis that may be addressed through psychosocial supportive services. Many informed treatment decisions, quality of life concerns, clinical trials, fertility options, and communication with one's medical team are important topics that can be discussed with the oncology social worker. A cancer diagnosis can be very overwhelming. Additional support and guidance, as well as establishing a supportive network, may help may help relieve feelings of anxiety related to one's diagnosis. It can be beneficial to determine ways to approach these challenges they, that may surface. Working with an oncology social worker through individual counseling can offer a space to express one's feelings, emotions, and concerns. By calling Cancer Care's Hopeline, one of our social workers can help you navigate ways to seek supportive services. Individuals diagnosed with breast cancer may also choose to supplement existing social networks by joining a support group. Joining a support group can be a way of connecting with others going through a similar experience who may understand what you encounter through the diagnosis and treatment. Being a member of a support group can offer the opportunity to communicate with others, gather and provide support, as well as obtain information. Cancer Care offers national breast cancer support groups online for those in active treatment as well as post-treatment. Our online support groups take place using a password-protected message board format and are led by professional oncology social workers. Groups are held for 15 weeks at a time, and you can register at cancercare.org. On Cancer Care's website, there's also a wide array of reading material and information related to breast cancer. This includes recorded Connect, Connect Education workshops, our podcast, Cancer Out Loud, the Cancer Care podcast, publications about speaking with your medical team and coping with a breast cancer diagnosis, as well as stories of help and hope and breast cancer resources. There's also a listing of upcoming community programs and workshops like today's. People diagnosed with breast cancer may experience practical and financial concerns through one's treatment. Unfortunately, financial concerns may be a source of continuing stress. Please know if you are, con if you are encountering financial hardships there's organizations that may be able to help you. Cancer Care's Resource Navigation Program offers short-term strength-based approach 
to serve patients and caregivers affected by cancer nationally. A trained specialist will work with the client in connecting them with resources, referrals, and financial assistance. If you're interested in learning, and more, learning more about Cancer Care services, I encourage you to call Cancer Care's National Hopeline at 800-813-4673 to speak with an oncology social worker. Our oncology social workers can share additional information about our services and help you explore ways to connect with others, including support groups and financial assistance resources. It's been a pleasure to be part of this very informative very informative program. Thank you so much for your attention and opportunity to speak today. I'll now turn it back to Dr. Mesner. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Spector. That was an outstanding presentation. I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A, so thank you so much. And now we're moving on to the Q&A, and I'm going to ask Krista to explain to all of you how to queue up for questions. I'm going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. Krista? Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, at this time, we will take questions from the web only. You may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. This is a question for Dr. Um, Matro. Do patients who cannot tolerate aromatase inhibitors have to feel guilty and doomed? Are the percentages that, that much against them? No, I mean, definitely not. There is, unfortunately, a small percentage of patients who just have really difficult side effects to the class of drugs um, that we call aromatase inhibitors. And, um, you know, it's not something that people choose. Um, but the the good thing is that we, we have alternatives in many scenarios. So if it's an early-stage breast cancer, um, we have tamoxifen. There are also three pills in the class of aromatase inhibitors, and sometimes if you have really hard side effects with one, you'll find one, uh, another one that you can tolerate a little bit better. Um, for patients who have to take them for five to 10 years, um, if you stick with it, uh, oftentimes some of those side effects get better. Uh, it's hard to be looking at five years of therapy uh, and not tolerating it in the moment, but Oftentimes, after a year or two, um, things things do get better. And then, in the if you're taking it for for metastatic breast cancer, again, tamoxifen is an option um, that we can often combine with a lot of the other targeted therapies. Fulvestrins is another option. And then there are um, other oral options that are coming down the pike for all comers. And then we also have an oral. Um, uh, third an oral medicine called alicestrant that's available for certain patients with um, with a specific mutation in their cancer. But no, it's not something that you choose, and you have to work with your provider, your doctor, to try to mitigate the side effects if possible to to make it so that you can find one that's the the least noxious, is what I say. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, and for Dr. Um Lathrop, um, are you ordering the FDA-approved Signatera test to track high-risk patients for metastases? Could you do me a favor and repeat that last part? Yes. Um, are you ordering the FDA-approved uh, Signatera test to track high-risk patients for metastases? Um, so I think the bigger question might be, circulating tumor cells and circulating tumor cell DNA. 
And I am not doing that off of clinical trials um, at, at this time. I think it's an important question, but I, I still think it's a little bit early to know how we should be using this clinically. And um, so I, I am participating in clinical trials where we're looking at modulating treatment based on circulating tumor cell DNA, both, both in the metastatic and actually the adjuvant setting. Excellent. Thank you. And for um, Dr. Matro, are there breast cancer therapies being developed to specifically address the CHECK2 mutation? Um, there, so I, I don't know of specific medicines right now in clinical trials, um, but, the, but mutations that are, that are identifiable like that are, are definitely targets that are being actively investigated. Um, I don't, uh, maybe one of my colleagues knows sort of how, how close some of those medicines are to um, phase two, phase three studies. Um, but anytime somebody has a mutation that's identifiable, um, it's a potential target that um, that can be uh, for which drugs uh, hopefully can be investigated. Awesome, thank you. Anyone want to add to that? Um, yes, Dr. Lathrop. I am also not aware of any uh, drugs that are in development for specifically patients with CHECK2 mutations. Um, also, um, uh, for Dr. Lysrup, is it recommended to continue with hormone prohibitor drugs post-hysterectomy? So I'm going to assume that the question is about hormone replacement therapy after the removal of um, a woman's ovaries. It, it, I think that might be the question. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, and there's... There is some varying data and opinions on this, whether it's combined progesterone and estrogen replacement versus progesterone alone. And I think if you, you know, based on the women's study uh, that came out you know, more than 20 years ago, we really decreased the number of women that we had on a replacement estrogen therapy for menopause symptoms. But I think for women who have significant menopausal symptoms, uh, low doses of progesterone um, or in combination with estrogen and progesterone are, are probably relatively safe for short periods of time. And then there's also things that we know um, are safe even in our cancer patients, things like vaginal estrogen creams or suppositories because the systemic uptake of the estrogen is much lower. Excellent, thank you. Um, and a question um, for Dr. Matro. I would like a better understanding of the use of denosina being brought into the mix of treatment. Um, yeah, so denosinab is also known as prolia, which is a twice-a-year injection to treat and prevent osteoporosis, and then it's also given as a brand name Exgiva, um, about once a month to, to treat um, for patients who have bone metastases to reduce the risk of um, skeletal-related events, which is a catch-all for things like pain or fractures. Um, the data for using it uh, in breast cancer, uh, we most commonly will use it in the metastatic setting for 
to reduce the risk of skeletal-related events. It's an easy drug to give um, once a month. It doesn't require an IV, so particularly for patients who are on oral pills and not coming in for IV infusions or injections already, uh, um, or for IV medicines, then you don't have to have an IV placed. Um, it is more expensive than the alternative um, that we give called zoledronic acid. Uh, so many of us will use zoledronic acid um, instead. And then in the early stage setting, um, there's mixed data for whether it improves outcomes for breast cancer. So if it reduces the risk of recurrence, it's not currently um, recommended to use um, routinely. Um, and one of the disadvantages of using it as a osteoporosis treatment is that once you start it, you can't stop it. So if you if you stop it, you lose very quickly the gains in bone density that you've made, and there's a rebound increased risk of vertebral fractures. So for patients that we have on prolia um, for osteoporosis treatments, we either just continue it indefinitely, or if we're going to stop it, we do give them a bisphosphonate like zoledronic acid or a lendronate oral pill um, just to get them through that period of time where there could be the rebound bone loss. Thank you. Um, and um, a question uh, for Ms. Spector um, in terms of clinical trials. Can you give some resources people use to find out about clinical trials? Of course, yeah. So Cancer Care has a program called My Trialist, and which is a website. So it's mytrialist.org, um, and you can also find it on our on Cancer Care's website and get connected through there. Um, but basically, what My Trialist is is you can go onto the website um, and you can find a clinical trial based on your diagnosis. Um, so you can even put in um, what type of clinical trial you're looking for, whether it's phase one, phase two phase three, phase four, um, your age, as well as um, your area to find a clinical trial. If you don't have access to the internet, you can also call Cancer Care's Hopeline and we can connect you with someone who can help you navigate in finding a clinical trial. Um, and there's also a number of other resources to help you find clinical trials. So know that you can always call our Hopeline and we'd be happy to point you in the right direction if there's something specific you're looking for, as well as if you're looking for financial assistance to help pay for travel to get to a clinical trial, there are those resources available. And um, do any of the other speakers want to mention other resources for clinical trials? Well, the Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation does also have um, a, a clinical trial um, database, if you call that, that line. Um, uh, Inspector, do you want to give them that information as well? Sure, yeah. So through the, if you are diagnosed with triple negative breast cancer, um, there is a specific, um, you can go to Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation's website, which is tnbcfoundation.org. Um, and on there, they also do have um, where you can find clinical trials. Um, and so basically, you can also call, um, they have a clinical trial matching service that you can call. Um, and through this matching service, it's actually through Emerging Med. Um, and I can provide that phone number as well, which is 855-731-6036, um, which is where you can connect with a clinical trial navigator who can also, also help you find clinical trials. Um, or you can also find this on their website too, 
um, match with a clinical trial too. And there also is www.cancer.gov where you can actually also contact um, and they will also be able to give you information about clinical trials and your own, of course, healthcare team. Well, I want to thank our speakers. You've been really phenomenal today. This has been an amazing call. Well, we've done this program before. This particular program that seems to me to be quite remarkable in terms of the questions asked and also our speakers, of course, are being quite phenomenal, but our questions were very good as well. Um, I also um, want to remind everyone that we have a next breast cancer program on February 7th on breast cancer in younger women, new treatment options. and also, um, I'm going to ask each of our speakers to give a takeaway from today's program. So I'm going to start with Dr. Lathrop, then Dr. Metro, Dr. Canola, and Ms. Spector. So, do you want to go first, Dr. Lathrop? Sure, I, I'll go first. Um, I think my takeaway is that you know we're finding novel therapeutics all the time for metastatic breast cancer, and often those therapeutics and slowly work their way down into the earlier phase settings to help prevent breast cancer. As Dr. Mazza mentioned, that's our, our overall goal is to prevent this disease uh, from becoming metastatic in the first place. So um, I, I just think that there's a lot of hope. There's a lot of new drugs being developed, and um, I, I think that's an exciting time. Excellent. Thank you. And Dr. Canola? Um, I will say then one thing that I want to say with our listeners is to highlight how important it is to participate in a clinical trial when you have the opportunity. These clinical trials pave the way for patients in the future. And the whole reason why we have made some, I mean, a lot of progress today is because somebody 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, agreed to participate in a clinical trial. So just as much as, uh, you know, scientists develop new therapies, I want to make sure that our, that our patients know and that they feel empowered, empowered to understand that their role is also fundamental when it comes to developing new therapies. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you. And Ms. Um, Spector? My takeaway was to know that there's support available, whether you're looking for emotional support or financial support. Reach out to your medical team. Reach out to cancer care or other cancer organizations if you are looking for support and we'll help you find, point you in the right direction to whatever you are looking for. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, I want to thank our speakers. I want to thank our participants. Um, I also um, want to acknowledge that although we did not get to everyone's question, um, I want to comment about that. For those of you who had a chance to ask a question, for those of you who have a question in queue that didn't get asked, and those of you who are thinking of a question, I'd like all of you to go back to your treating healthcare team and ask your question of your healthcare team because you've learned something from today's program and that you'll ask your questions in a more informed way. And your healthcare team, of course, knows everything about you because they have their record, your records right in front of you, and so they can answer your questions in the really best possible way. Again, um, I, I just want to thank you all for your participation today, and um, I look forward to you participating in our future programs. And, uh, and, and thank you all. And, uh, and remember, you're not alone, that there are many resources out there. Um, and you'll be getting a survey monkey evaluation from us. And in that evaluation, there will be information, any of the um, information that we gave out during the call in terms of phone numbers or websites, um, you'll be getting that and some additional things as well, in addition to your being able to evaluate the program as well. Again, thank you all, and have a fine day. Thank you all.
Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop and you may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.